All right. Can I invite you all to stand again? One more time. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 1. We are still in Romans chapter 1. Uh, Romans chapter 1. Uh, we're going to go to a lot of verses this morning. So just read with me verse 14. That's how long we're going to go this morning. Verse 14. Romans chapter 1, verse 14. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Hey, pray with me. That is it. <laughs> Let's pray together. Dear Father, we thank you that by your mercy and grace uh, to the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit by faith in Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, we have come to know you. And at the moment of salvation, you, you're anoint, you anointed us by your, with your Spirit who will remain with us forever to teach us to, under, to understand your truth. Holy Spirit, be our teacher this morning. Father, you have drawn us by the power of the gospel to the life of your word. You alone have given us grace to receive the truth. We were so deeply, God, defiled by our own guilt. We were once condemned to destruction under the righteous demands of your justice. Our very souls were corrupt. We lived in rebellion against your law. Our minds were hostile to your faith. And our very lives were an offense to your holiness. We were hopeless until you gave us an eternal hope. You have saved us by your goodness, by your grace, and by your mercy. May Christ Jesus be fully on display in us through both our words and our works, so that others may see and be drawn to the pure light of the gospel. And we ask this things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Um, we're going to start a, a, a two-week series on the I Am statements of the Apostle Paul from Romans chapter 1, verse 14, 15, and 16. Um, as you're familiar with the I Am statement of Jesus in the gospel, this is Paul's I Am statement in the epistle to the Romans. Um, you know, in college football, there, there's only two teams, right? It's actually one team, and the, the team is Alabama. Right? There's only one team really is Alabama because they win almost every year. Right? At the end of the year, who's playing the national championship? Alabama. I don't like Alabama. You know why? Because they always win. <laughs> right? You don't like people who always win. It's boring that way, right? But one of their quarterbacks a few years ago, his name is A.J. McCarron. Uh, he's now a backup quarterback for the Atlanta Falcons. Had a spectacular college football career leading Alabama to two national titles. It's quite an amazing that he's even able to play sports at all or is even alive. When he was five years old, he was badly hurt in a jet ski accident which affected his skull and the side of his face and, and one of his eye. Doc, the doctor told, initially told his mother that he had two hours to live. Gradually, the prognosis improved a bit to include permanent... Um, to include permanent brain damage uh, and loss of sight. But, but A.J. pulled through and improved enough eventually to become a world-class athlete. A.J. McCarron said, God gave me a second chance and I'm going to make the most of it. I feel like I, I have, he said, and I don't take my life for granted. Our, our stories may not be as dramatic as A.J.'s, and they might not be about a physical survival, but, but the truth is we've all been given second chances, Amen. And that second chance came from God, and we should not ever, ever take it for granted. Paul was a prime example of making the most out of this second chance. And this is Paul making the most out of his life. Let me just set you a little bit. So we know that Paul was a missionary, and, and his voyage took him to far to other places in, in the world. So I just want to give you a picture of, this is Paul, and he started in Caesarea, and then he, look at how much he traveled all the way to his last destination, which is Rome. And I want you to imagine how long this trip would have been in, in a day when the method of transportation consisted of walking, riding on donkeys or camels, finding a passage on a ship. 
this was going to be extremely long and probably somehow difficult journey. And we read this in 2 Corinthians. We need to realize that this would be a long journey, even by modern standard. But despite the length, he was absolutely committed to going there and preaching the gospel to the Romans. Why? The question is why? Why was he willing to take to make such a long, difficult journey for a group of people he didn't even know? Why? Why would he do this? Who in their right mind will travel this far? Right? How many guys here don't even like going to L.A.? Right? Can you imagine? You know, you want to go to L.A. Right? Why? Because it's traffic. Right? How many guys here get really upset when there's traffic? Like a two-minute traffic. And you're just like, what is wrong? How many guys have lose your Christianity over traffic? <laughs> right? Okay, I'm glad we have some honest. We're gonna do we're gonna do Lord's Supper later, so we'll save that. <laughs> but Paul, the first thing he says here in verse 14, look with me here. I am under obligation. I am under contract. Let me just say that right. Let me just tell you that right now. What are you? You are under contract. Say that with me. I am under contract. That's what you're under. Okay. Paul begins by saying, I'm under obligation. Notice that he begins, I am in the present tense, not I will be in the future, nor I was once was in the past. He used the present tense of the verb to indicate that his, that this was a constant state in his life. Every moment of every day, this is not, this is true of him. No matter where he is, where, whatever, whenever it is, he was always under contract. He was always under obligation. See, no way he was saying here that he's only under contract when he's preaching on Sunday or he's teaching on a Monday. There's no multiple choice where he gets to pick and choose which days he is to be a minister of the gospel. Because a minister is always a minister. Last week I shared with you that pastoral work is, is a sacred duty, which requires a 24 hours a day and a seven days a week commitment. And there's no such a thing as clocking out. When, people, when Paul said that he was under obligation, the King James, the New King James means I am a debtor. Uh, Opelitist, which in Greek. When he said that he was a debtor, he, he was saying that he was bound by a duty to do this. He was bound. This was not, not a choice. He was bound to do this. The verb speaks of financial obligation. One a person owing another person is the idea here. It's a financial obligation. When one person owes another person money. In Romans 13, 7, uh, Paul tells the Romans later on that paid to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Um, Psalms 37, verse 12. The wicked borroweth but does not pay back. There's a requirement for us to pay back. Uh, the bottom line is the borrower is a servant to the weak, to the lender. You can be in debt in two ways. One is if someone lends you hundred dollars, as long as that hundred dollars in your pocket, you're a debtor to that lender. You need to give it back at some point. The other way you would be uh, in debt if someone gives you hundred dollars and said, "When you see a certain person, give him the hundred dollars." The, the result is, is a two-way debt. As long as the money is with you in your pocket, you're not only in debt to the lead lender, but to the person to whom you are to give it. We are, we owe. I had trouble interpreting this, this verse for two reasons. The number one reason is that salvation is a free gift from God. Praise God. Praise God for that. Right? It's a free gift. Right? Because Ephesians 2.8 tells us that for by grace you have been saved through faith. And in Colossians 2.14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, which is death, this he set aside by nailing it to the cross. I, I love how Paul broke down that passage for us. That he canceled my record of sin. He canceled it with the legal demands of my death. And he nailed it to the cross. So, therefore, how could it be, how could Paul, therefore, be in debt after he received this free gift, which he paid nothing for? Clearly, he is not in debt to God for saving him. 
because that's God's free gift. The, the second reason I had trouble is because he has never met them yet. He's never met the Romans yet. Yet he claims that he owes them. I think there are two ideas being expressed here. The first idea is that he's obligated to do this because of all that Jesus has done for him. And you say, what has Jesus done for him? Can you imagine saving the worst sinner of all? The biggest jerk in the New Testament, save? Not only save, but call to be an apostle? So to him, that was a big deal. In Paul's mind, Jesus having, having leave, leaving heaven and dying a horrible death for his sins and rising from the grave was a big deal. And it was such a big deal, in fact, that he couldn't stop telling people about it. The second idea is that he is obligated to do this because God has called him and given him the privilege to be part of it. To Paul being allowed by the sovereign God of the universe to share in his mission was a big deal. Thus, deserved his full devotion and, and commitment. And we see this as he wrote 13 of the epistles. He gave us his heart. In Ephesians 3.8, he said, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints... This grace was given, he calls the gospel grace, was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. This was his commitment. This was his devotion, right? This grace that was given to him on the road to Damascus, now he's to preach it to the Gentiles. What is he to preach? The unsearchable riches of Christ. Is there so much to share? Would you agree with me? That there's so much to share about who Jesus is. We can never run out of sharing this unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul addressed, understood the vast riches of the gospel of grace that had been deposited into his account. The moment he became a believer. I was talking to a member of someone. I, when they were buying a house, they said, you know, I, I, I'm a person who doesn't like money coming out of my account. I just like money going into my account. <laughs> right? And so that's not, that doesn't work that way. You know? But see, what happened to us is the moment that we, we, the moment that we believe in Jesus Christ, something was deposited to each one of us. And what is that? The gospel. The gospel of Christ was deposited, and it keeps on depositing over and over and over and over again. And we're so rich, aren't we? But we also, what? but we don't share what was deposited in, our, in us. Someone's in need, we have the, we have the resources to do it, and yet we withhold it in our hearts. How come people who are so rich and gets richer even more don't even bother to share? But that wasn't Paul. Paul, he knew what was deposited inside of him. He knew how wretched he was. He knew how, how that if God didn't intervene in his life, he'll be condemned to death forever and ever. So he didn't take that deposit for granted. He, he said, I'm going to give it. He, he was uh, made the recipient of the free gift of salvation. Now he was charged by God to give it to others. Therefore, we must share the gospel with others as a weight of value, the mercy that we receive from Christ. In his mind, ownership of the gospel created an obligation to the gospel. Because he knows the gospel, the good news of God's grace in Christ. He owes it to make it known. He does. And, and, and please don't get me wrong that, that he's not saying, that I, I need to do this so that I could earn my salvation. No way he's saying that. What he's saying is because God is so merciful to me because I know the value of it. I'm going to make it known. In 1 Corinthians 9 verse 16, it says here, for if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. And he says, he uses the Old Testament term here. He said, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And he said, woe to me. Paul, Paul is very much aware that a failure to obey God's call would result in his suffering. Serious discipline from the Lord. 
Jeremiah the prophet in verse 20, verse 9, tried to receive the call of God and even tried to give it back to him. And he experienced a serious discipline until he obeyed. He said, if I say I will not mention you or him, God, or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I'm weary with holding it in, and I cannot. To Jeremiah, to Paul, they had no choice. Because it was a burning fire in, shut up in their bones. And if they don't do it, they get weary by holding it in. Do you feel that way? you ever feel that way? This obligation was not something they, they took lightly. The, the picture here is this, of, of was a relentless and intense sense of obligation that they could not shake even if they wanted to. Let, let's say you found a cure for cancer. Would you be quiet about it? Or, or would you feel a sense of urgency to share with others the cure for cancer? To, to Paul, knowing that the gospel and not telling others would be worse than having the cure for the most terrible kind of disease and then refusing it to share it. I have cancer. Um, and then I know that you have the cure. And you don't give it to me? Shame on you. Really. <laughs> it's like, hey I, hey, I have the cure for cancer, but uh, I won't give it to you. Does that make sense to you? Yet you have the cure. Our world is still in uproar from this pandemic. All of us has been confront, confronted with our own mortality and helplessness. At one point, we were starving for hope in times of gloom and doom. You know, before I could even continue... Um, would you just pray with me real quick? Father, um, just having, just talking about gloom and doom, God, we want to pray for the Ukrainians today, God, that our hearts are broken uh, because of evil. Uh, God, our hearts are broken because of that this evil led to many people's death. But our prayer, God, is that for those who have died, that they, that they had peace with you. That they have come to the knowledge of the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. And for those who will still die in, in this um, war, that, God, I pray that you will draw them near to yourself. I pray, O oh Lord, that they will find hope not in NATO, the hope not in the United States, but hope in Jesus Christ alone their own, the only one who will be their steady anchor. God, I pray for the pastors in Ukraine, God, that they would not withhold, that they would remember that they're under obligation, that they're under contract to preach the gospel. So Lord, I, I pray that, that God, that you will open hearts, that Lord, that they will see you in your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. For the past two years, uh, we've all been witnesses of what we never expected. Mounds of toilet papers uh, piled in carts. <laughs> uh, shelves emptied of hand sanitizer and, and water. Um, conflict over the last loaf of bread. An awful, really an awful sight. Maybe you've been... You have seen people on Facebook post pics, uh, pictures of their garage full of paper goods and food. This image is a sad sign of a lack of concern for people, a real sign of selfishness, an expression of what we call hoarding. Hoarding, by definition, is, a, is, a, is collecting and often hiding away a supply of something of value. Um, you know, you know, do you know anybody who are hoarders? You guys anybody know who are hoarders? Of course, none of us are, right? <laughs> right? Right? Hoarders, right? And, and, okay, we could talk about hoarders for a little bit more. 
but we'll, we will move past, past hoarding because uh, I start feeling some defensiveness here. <laughs> so, um, and in times of crisis, when resources are low, people seem especially prone to hoarding. Our self-interest shows our natural bent towards self-preservation and even at the expense of others. It speaks, quite frankly, to our sin. But what is even worse than potentially hurting others by withholding, you know, physically in, in a time of crisis, but spiritually and eternally, by hoarding the good news. Weekly, you have the privilege of having your soul nourished by the Word of God. You know the peace of Christ and his eternal assurance, even in the face of something like a global pandemic. But sadly, disobedience and selfishness has made you spiritual hoarders of the gospel to your neighbors and to your friends who are in desperate need of the gospel. Spiritual hoarders. Just as medical personnel have labored to bring people the hope of a cure for for COVID-19, you must also labor to bring people the gospel, which alone can cure the most dangerous virus of all, the SIN virus. Sin is a spiritual virus that invades our whole being, and Christ is the only cure. And you are under obligation, you are under contract to give this cure to those who are suffering from the SIN virus. And that's what Paul says urged him. That's what compelled him. That was the constant consciousness that he had a secret, that, that he had the secret of releasing people from their sins. He has the cure. Therefore, he must tell people about Jesus and the way of salvation in order to show how, how grateful he was to God for saving him. And this is the same true for you. As long as you withhold the gospel from someone else, whether it's in your work, your family, your school, or someone you, you work out with, you remain in debt to them because God has assigned you to give them the truth of the gospel. You have the cure. You got to go share this cure. You can't just hold it. And I'll tell you why. Because eternity depends on it. A trusty banker who has been entrusted with securities or stocks by an elderly grandparent for the benefit of uh, minor grandchildren who are too young to handle their own financial affairs. The trustee holds the stocks, but they are not his. Whose are they? They belong to the grandchildren. So the trustee who holds them for now has something not his own. They, they belong to those for whom they were always intended, the grandchildren. So the trustee is indebted to the grandchildren to ensure they get the gift from their grandparents. Paul is the trustee banker. You are a trustee banker. He knows that he holds the treasure of the gospel to the Gentiles. He cannot rest until he has fulfilled his obligation. And he does not have the option of refusing Romans chapter 1 verse 5, he's, Paul said, I received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. Paul said, I received this grace and then I received apostleship. And what's it for? So I could call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. He cannot keep this good news only to himself. He owes it to the Gentiles. He owes it to give them what is rightfully theirs. You know, when this reminds me when, when Jesus was uh, about to leave and he says, you know, I'm, I'm the great shepherd and I've gathered my, my, my own people, Israel. And then he said, but I have other sheep too. And Paul said, I'm indebted to those sheep. He said, I'm indebted to those sheep. That obligation to mission ran through his veins. We see this in all of his 13 letters. The church leaders in Galatia describes his ministry this way in chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. That he had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised just as Peter had been to the circumcised. And I want you to notice the phrase, had been entrusted. 
Since he had received the gospel, now he was also entrusted with giving it to the Gentiles. His mission was to give the good news to those he had always been intended. I want you to guys see this map. And this map was humbling for me. You see, there's forward and going back and going forward. And, you know, these are all the places that Paul went. These are all the places that he felt obligated to go. You and I have a map. Not, not the same map as Paul. But you have a map. And you're also obligated to go to that map. You know, this was so humbling for me when I saw this. Because how could a man, why would a man do this? Why? And I truly believe this, because if you love Jesus, you would do this. If you really truly love Jesus, you would do this. If you truly love people, you would do this. If you're really concerned about heaven and hell, you will do this. If you're really concerned about people you, you profess to love, you will do this. When Jesus said, make disciples, Paul immediately obeyed. There was no delay in him. It was never his choice to make. It was God's command to be obeyed. Ultimately, he was under contract to God. In, in Acts 26, verse 15 to 18, Paul shared with King Agrippa what he was told by Jesus when he was on his way to hurt or kill Christians. Jesus told him that his calling was special and it was an, his obligation to carry out his command to the nations. The Old Testament imagery of being under obligation was different than being a debtor. Ezekiel the prophet is in chapter 38. So if you have your Bible, Ezekiel 38. Would you open your Bible with me? Ezekiel 38. Okay, Ezekiel, if you don't know, it's in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 38. Ezekiel the prophet in, in Ezekiel 38 saw himself like a watchman. Okay, like a watchman on the wall. If he sees the enemy coming, he must blow the trumpet to warn the people. But if the people do not respond to the warning, and the enemy comes and kills them, their blood is on their own hands. Their death was their fault. But if the people that you share with the gospel turns a deaf ear, the destruction was due to their own unbelief and their own choice. They will die because of their own refusal to repent of their sins and, and to turn to Jesus. On the other hand, if the watchman sees the enemy coming and chooses not to blow the trumpet and the people die, their blood is on his hands. This is the same, the same is true for you and, and for me. The same truth. Because we are all what? Watchmen. That's who we are, right? We're all watchmen. That's who we are. Right? And then there's an enemy coming. What do you do when an enemy comes? What do you do? You, do you say, oh, let me open the door. No. You close the door and then you tell people, hey, they're coming. Right? What happens when you see a burning house and your friend said, hey, I want to go to that house. What do you do? Do you say, go ahead? No, you don't. You say, stay away. You say, don't go in there. You have people that you love that does not have Jesus Christ. You have a mom. You have a dad. You have an uncle. You have a brother. You have a sister. You have a child that does not have a relation with Jesus Christ. And you're that watchman. What are you going to do? You're going to let in the enemy of death and kill them? Or are you going to close the door and warn them and say, this is the way. And Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Him. And if you don't accept this, you will die in your sins. You are a watchman, whether you like it or not. Whether you feel it or not, you are. To Paul, Paul said, you know what? Fulfill your ministry. Be an evangelist. That's what he says. Right? So here you are a watchman. 
Jay Packer pinpoints this tragic truth. He said, nobody stands under the wrath of God, save those who have chosen to do so. The essence of God's action in wrath is to give men what they choose. In all its implication, nothing more and equally nothing less. C.S. Lewis adds this chilling comment. I willingly believe that the damned are, in one sense, successful rebels to the end. That the doors of hell are locked on the inside. That's what's at stake. What's at stake is not like, oh, man, you know, my, my parents or, or my aunt or my brother or my child will just spend maybe, maybe a month in hell or a week maybe in hell. No. The Bible says they will eternally burn there in eternal punishment forever and ever. There, there's no break. That's what's at stake. That's what you're under obligation to. That's what you're under contract to. Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 4. Will you turn your Bibles with me? Actually, maybe I have it. 2 Timothy 4, verse 4. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. That's what it says, right? The imperative command for all of us is what? Preach the word. Say, preach the word. Say again, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. This is why the reason why we preach the gospel. How are you doing in that? How are you doing? When's the last time you did this? When's the last time you actually preach? Yeah, all of us are in difficult situations, right? Some of you are teachers who have to really walk a fine line of when to share Christ and when not to share Christ. Right? We're in an uncomfortable situation where we say, you know, if I share the gospel, it'll be so uncomfortable. I'm going to have to, I work with this person. Why even do it? But you have a duty, you're under obligation to, to preach. The gospel, you do. I, I was just on the charity. Um, said, hey, do we have some rice? And she goes, can you get me some rice so I could just like do something with it? And she goes, oh, no, I can't give you rice because that means I'm going to be the one cleaning it. <laughs> so, so she gave me something bigger that's easier to clean. God said that uh, his word is a seed. And all of you possesses the seed. Is you have the Bible. All of you have it. All of you have it. All of you have one. I mean, you don't have it yet. I'll give it to you soon. And you are to throw it out. You are to throw it out. You have to throw it out. Throw out. Duck. <laughs> Duck. Duck. I really wanted to hit some of you who are really disobedient about this, but <laughs> they want to do that. But I just want to tell you this. The seed is the word of God. And the Bible says we are to throw the seed out. Do you know which heart it's going to fall onto? Do you know what kind of ground it's going to fall into? You don't. But you still need to throw it out. Because you know what? As long as God is active, as long as God is on mission, guess what? He could move hearts. Amen? And that seed that you give away, maybe it's not you that will lead them to Christ. Maybe someone else will water it. Maybe one day God will increase that seed that you planted. But you have to plant it. Because if you don't plant it, it's never going to ever grow to anything, right? Well, how simple it is. How simple is it when you just pick up a seed and, and you say, you know what this seed is? This is the gospel seed. I'm still waiting who I'm going to throw this to, but okay. <laughs> but I, I want to tell you this seed is powerful. Because this seed saves. Because you know what this seed symbolizes? That there's a God who will offended and that we're sinful. And that, but there's a solution to our sin problem, Jesus Christ. 
And then we have the duty to tell them to respond to this gospel through repentance. That's all we need to say. And you say, oh, that is so hard. It's not. Because the moment you say it, it's no longer, you're no longer responsible to it. Your obligation is done. But yet, you don't want to even just throw it. You just want to keep the seed and the seed in your pocket, the treasures of the kingdom, the keys of the kingdom, and just kind of want to just store it here where it's safe. It doesn't go anywhere. People will go to hell. It don't matter. I'm going to heaven. It doesn't really matter. Can I just tell you that it matters? Can I tell you that it just matters? Can I just tell you that it's the only thing that matters? In this life, nothing else matters. In this life, the only thing that matters is when someone dies, where will they spend eternity? That's the only thing that matters. Do we understand this? Do you understand the weight of this? That this is the only thing that matters. That your loved ones who you say you love will spend life in a Christless eternity in hell forever. That is the weight. In Acts, in Acts chapter 20, verse 26 to 27, when Paul met with the Ephesian elders, he reminded them that he had completed his obligation, that he fulfilled his contract to preach and teach them the gospel, that he was innocent of the blood of all men. Scholars believe that for 35 years he did not fail to blow his trumpet. Thus his hands were clean of the blood of men. He never views office as an obligation just as something he must do, but something he wants to do. And sadly, many pastors and many people in the church view evangelism as a chore, as an obligation to be completed. Something you must do just like doing your homework. It's not. It's something that you must do. You know, one thing I, I enjoyed, I actually talked to my friend of mine. He's, um, he, um, he pastors in an African-American church. And he goes, hey, Al, I can I tell you your availability to preach? I said, okay, I'm available like sometime in uh, late April. You know, I, I could come to your church. And I said, oh, but I, I don't know if I can handle it, right? <laughs> because in, a, in a, my friend's church, uh, they were highly offended of me. You know, I'm, I'm already offensive, but they were highly offended because at the end of service, I spoke for about an hour. Spoke for an hour. And then the lady says, you know, next time you come, you got to bring us more than that. I go, more than an hour? And I go, dude, if I do that to our church, dude, they will crucify me. <laughs> dude, I go five minutes, they're like stressing out. <laughs> and then I remember I go, I go, I said, is Gloria still there? Gloria's 84. And the last time I was there was two years ago before the pandemic. And Gloria was there, and, and I love Gloria because she's in the back. And as I was preaching, right, I was, I was not used to, first of all, I was not used to how American, uh, black American churches are. I'm just not used to it, but I love it. Because I only know, so when I get to heaven and, and God asks me, hey, how many members do you have in your church? I said, I have two. I have, I have Lem and Jeff. You're the only one who people say amen. <laughs> all right, so, so I know that. So, so. So I know that, and I have not given up on you yet. Okay, not giving up yet. Okay, you know when, when someone says amen, it's just actually you're saying yes. You're just agreeing with a person. So it's actually okay to say yes. And then, so, but this Gloria said this in the back while I was preaching. This while I was preaching, while I was getting going, and she said, Preacher, blow your trumpet. <laughs> Can you imagine? Just imagine me. Just imagine this. Okay, I'm preaching away, and someone in the back is shouting, Preacher, blow your trumpet. Did you know I have to stop? And I'm like, blow what? <laughs> I was like, blow your trumpet. <laughs> and she said, yes. Gloria's still there. And, and just remember, when you come in, preacher, you got to blow your trumpet. Right? And that's what we have to do. We have a trumpet, and it's loud, and it's called the gospel. 
It's called the gospel. You got to blow it because it's powerful. All Paul wanted to do is to preach the gospel. That's why he was eager to see them. Verse 15, he was eager to see them. Back in verse 11, he informs them how he longs to see them, that he may impart to them some spiritual gift to strengthen their faith. He can't wait to get to Rome. That's what Paul is saying here, that he's under obligation, under contract, in order to pay back his debt to the people. The same obligation is binding on you and in me. When people said, when Paul said, I am under obligation, please understand that he's not in some special category while the rest of us are in a different one. You, you just can't simply say, hey, you know, we pay our pastor. That's his job to do evangelism. No. Evangelism is all of our jobs. You know, I envy Howie because uh, he's just taking an evangelism class right now. And his class requires him to, to share the gospel to how many people per week? Two people per week, Right? Can you imagine if your grade depends on whether you share the gospel or not? <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> right? What would that be like? How many guys will be like, dude, I got a D plus. I go, what is a D plus? What is a D plus? You're not failing, but you have a D plus. D plus is like this. Huh? Okay, poor, poor. Uh, teachers, poor. Okay, poor grade. It's a poor grade. <laughs> Here's what a poor grade looks like. Let's say you have a friend, he said, man, I really want to share them the gospel. You know, I just feel it. It's just here, it just stays right here in my feelings. Or maybe you go like this, oh, you know, I want to, but I just don't feel it. You don't feel it? You know, I read one, one time, uh, a theologian said that one second in hell is the most horrible place there ever will be. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 10. And this has been um, a motivation for my life. And, and I hope that it will be for yours as well. In second Corinthians five ten, Paul says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. On that day, I'm, I'm going to give an account. You are going to give an account to God and it will be revealed whether you invested the gospel into the lives of others or if you hoarded the truth and you kept it to yourself. Just like the watchman on the wall, you will also give an account in that day for whether or not you shared the life-saving message of the gospel. This implies that every one of you must share this life-saving message of the gospel. God who we have highly offended, who is our creator and just God. And there's man who sinned and violated his laws. But there's Christ, who is the key to all of this, is the answer to our sin problem and a demand for a response to the gospel. They must believe. They must turn away from their sins. Yet at the same time, what's harder to grasp is how many professing believers can live with such complacency, with, any, with no sense of, of any obligation to the Lord and His gospel. You see, the gospel is not something you can keep to yourself. The early church had debates about who they should go to with the gospel, but never about whether they should, they should go. Christians should be known for sharing, not hoarding, especially when it comes to the most valuable commodity in the world, the gospel. You have the good news of God's grace in Christ. You possess the gospel that creates in you an obligation with the gospel. You have the knowledge of Christ. You owe that knowledge to others. Right now, there's 2 billion people in the world who have little to no knowledge of the gospel. And you must go because you want to. You do this because you must. Michael Katz said that this is our standing orders. And Johnny Hunt says that that you might win one, but you just don't know, that one may win thousands. We see this in, in the life of D.L. Moody, right? You have a standing order, and your standing order is to preach the gospel. That's your only standing order. There's nothing else that you're under obligated to. There's many things that you and I are obligated to. We're obligated to pay our bills. We're obligated to love our wives, yes? We're obligated to love our husbands, yes? We're obligated to love our kids, yes? But you also have an obligation to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you have the obligation to love the lost. You have also that obligation. 
And then the question is to who? Paul said both to Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. We also will have to notice whom he felt this obligation to. He makes the contrast between the Greeks and the barbarians. In the Greek mindset, a barbarian was anyone not, in a, uh, not of Greek culture. He also feels duty-bound to share the gospel with the, un- the educated and the uneducated. He's basically saying that he wants to share them this message with all people, regardless of race, nationality, cultural, or socioeconomic status. He wants to share it with those who are like him and those who are very different than him. You see, the church is meant to be a place where all people are welcome. The gospel is for all people and should be shared with all people. Each of us should feel the same kind of obligation that he felt regardless of race, nationality, culture, socioeconomic status. Yet sadly, this is not always the case in the church. Unfortunately, what many Christians do is talk only to people who are just like them, who smells like them. They don't want to deal with messy or different people. As you share the gospel, don't allow these things to ever enter your minds. Understand that partiality is a sin. If all these things are barriers that keep you from giving the gospel, then you might ought to wonder if you've been truly saved. Jesus was very intentional about reaching out to people who were different than he was, wasn't he? Well, which was, for Jesus, this was easy, isn't it? Because he was perfect and everyone else was what? Different. Yet he set the example of reaching out to the worst kinds of sinners. All in, all in an effort to see them save. Let me show you what he saw as he looked at the world in, in Matthew 9, verse 36, 37. Where he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed, helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are key. He saw people with overwhelming problems. He saw people without a shepherd, a savior. He saw plenty of people in need, but not enough people to care for them. This seems to be the way Paul saw the world as well. How about you? How do you see people? How do you see the world? Paul's heart has been so gripped by the gospel that he never focused on race, color, cultural, socioeconomic status. They just look for people who needs to hear. That's all you need to do. Paul was willing to do anything, sacrifice anything, to win as many people to Christ. Nothing else to him mattered. Look what he said in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19 to 23. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant of all, that I may win more of them. Win, the word win. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I may win those under the law. To those outside of the law, I became as an out, uh, one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I may win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I may win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them. And it's a blessing. That's, that's how he, he viewed life. I need to win. I need to save. Of course, not him, but Christ. He deeply believed what Solomon said in Proverbs 11.30. He who is wise wins soul. As believers, will, as believers, will you ask God to change you? So that when you look at people, you will see people that will spend eternity in hell without Christ. Will you look at people this way? Do you feel yet the weight of your obligation as Jesus and Paul did? Will you preach the gospel to yourself? I wonder what will happen if to Watermark Fellowship Church if we all think that we are under contract to disperse the gospel. What will happen to this place? Sadly, there are Christians today that say there's no such a thing as duty in the Christian life. There's no such a thing as a contract. And any thoughts about a contract makes one a legalist. People in the, in, the, in the past have accused me that I'm putting them under the law. They argue that they are free to live however they see fit. That they can do whatever they want to do. It's really unfortunate because these are well-meaning Christians who are against the idea of duty and delight. And can I just tell you that, that's, that it's 
foolish to think that you have no duty to God. It's also a mistake to think that if you do nothing out of a sense of duty, not out of a willing heart, that you just don't do it. And that your actions are completely worthless. Not true. Please don't confuse duty and delight. Because you will run the risk of making yourself and others think that God's commands are optional. They're merely suggestions. If you don't want to, if you don't want to, I don't. And when you're not feeling it, you can simply say, God, no. However, Scripture is quite clear that although delighting in one's duty is the goal, our Creator God, your Creator God, still expects you to fulfill His demands even when you would rather do something else. Jonah. Jonah's story is a perfect illustration of this principle. He took no delight in his duty, absolutely none. You know what he said? Do you know what Jonah said? God said to, sorry, God said to Jonah, go to Nineveh that they may repent of their sins. You know what Jonah said? No. That's what he said. Again, Jonah, I'm going to ask you, go to the Ninevites, that they may have a revival. No, I don't want to see them have a revival. I want to all see them be destroyed. That's what Jonah said. So he said to God, forget you, God. That's what he's saying. And what did God do? No, kind of big fish. (laughs) Right? He made it known. So, but he took no delight in his duty, but God made him full, fulfilled his duty anyways. Of course, Ephesians 6, 5 to 8 tells us that God finds our works more pleasing when we do it from the heart. Please know this, that the Bible never places duty and delight in opposition. First, First John 5, 2. Let's not allow his commandments burdensome to us. As you walk in the Spirit, you will stop feeling that your service to the Lord and to others are burdens. An oppressive duty. But it's a delight. How many of you here, and this is my last portion, how many of you here believes in divine appointments? How many of you guys believe in that? Divine appointments. Divine appointments not like this. It's not like you go to a Chevy dealership and you say, Oh, dude, I'm divinely appointed to watch to buy Dr. Vett. You are not divinely appointed to do that. Okay? That's not divine appointments. That's divine lust. Okay? That's not divine appointment. But how many of you guys believe in divine appointments? You guys believe in that? I believe in that. Um, they are, divine appointments are moments in time in which you encounter God or you come across a person or group that is significant in God's purpose or an event that you realize has been orchestrated by the Holy Spirit. That's what a divine appointment is. And Oswald Chambers said this. I love this. God is a great engineer creating circumstances to bring about moments in our lives of divine importance leading us to divine appointments. And Acts 16, 13, and 14 pictures one of those divine appointments. On the Sabbath, we, we went a little way outside the city to the riverbank where, he, where we thought people would be meeting for prayer. We sat down to speak with some women who had gathered there. One of them was Lydia from Thyatira, a merchant of pricey purple cloth who worshiped God. And as she listened to us, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. The Lord opened her heart and she accepted what Paul was saying. It was God who directed Paul to the region of Macedonia because Lydia was God's goal. Second, it was God alone who opened her heart. This is what we call effectual call. The, the Westminster um, Shorter and larger catechism says that um, that it's God alone who acted in this. Uh, John Jesus himself said in John six thirty seven to forty four, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You see, the most important element in evangelism is asking God through prayer to open someone's heart. For without this, there can be no genuine conversation conversion. This is a work of God, and He must do it all in order for someone to believe. And, but there's something that, that has to come from inside of you. This obligation, the weight of this obligation, the weight of this contract that we all have, this deposit that he has deposited in our lives, is given to each one of us. You have the keys to the kingdom. You have the cure to the virus, to the sin virus. You have it. you got to go share it. And there has to be this burden that's burning inside of you. There must be. 
Because every child of God must, must have this burden. Or you have to question whether you're a child of God. Right? What's burning inside of you? Right? Your house, your car, your job. What, what burns inside of you? What's, what's burning inside of you? What wakes you up in the morning? What is that? Just to live? It can't be. There's got to be more than that. So the question is, so what? So what? So what? Okay, you tell us that we have an obligation. So what? Carpe diem. Live life to the fullest. Knowing that you have, knowing that we have an eternity before us should change everything about how you and I live today. We seek to glorify God in all that we do. We seize the day to share with others the grace that is to come. We live into the full abounding in the work of the Lord because we know it's never in vain. We make the most of every moment. We actively store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy. As living sacrifice, we experience the truth of Jesus' words in Mark 8, 835. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospel will save it. In just a few minutes, um, we're going to celebrate the Lord's table where Paul reminds us that participating comes with a certain obligation. And this responsibility is this. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you're under obligation, you're under contract to proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. And just... The celebration comes with a commitment to preach the gospel. All of this, of course, assuming that God opens the door of opportunity. That's really the key to evangelism. And I believe that all of us here are assigned at least one divinely appointed gospel opportunity. And I want you to think about whom you will cross paths with today, this week and this month and this year. And you must have this predetermined mindset that as God gives you opportunities, you're to open your mouth and speak to them about Jesus. You don't have to pray about it. You know why you don't have to pray about it? Because you're under contract. You are to fulfill your contract to the end. And just to be clear, I'm no way talking about being a fanatic, standing on a corner, intimidating people with the gospel. I'm talking about prayer. I'm talking about prayer. I'm talking about investing. I'm talking about inviting. And I'm talking about repeating the process. That's what I'm talking about. At times, evangelism starts with building bridges by praying for them, befriending them, and getting to know them. And when the opportunities present itself, and God will do this, He will. You must open your mind and talk to them about the gospel. Many of you here have been building friendship or had built friendship for years. But at some point, you must carry the gospel across the bridge. You just must carry it across the bridge. It's just not enough just to leave it there. Is it so hard? Is it really so hard? Before we partake of the Lord's Supper, um, I want us to apply what, what 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six says. I want you to, at this time, pray this, uh, this prayer. Can you see that? I want you to pray this prayer. And I want you to think of someone right now. Let the Holy Spirit just, just have you think of someone of a family member. It could be your kids. It could be your cousin. It could be anybody in your family. Mother or father, whoever it may be. A friend. A co-worker. A classmate. Anyone. A neighbor. And would you pray this prayer and then we'll start the Lord's table. Lord Jesus, we bow before you in humility and ask you to examine our hearts today. Holy Spirit, show us anything that is not pleasing to you. God, reveal any secret pride, any unconfessed sin, any rebellion or unforgiveness that may be hindering our relationship with you. We know that we are your beloved child and having received you into our hearts and, and life and having accepted your death as penalty for our sinfulness. The price you paid cover us for all time and our desire, Lord, is to live for you. 
Lord, as we take the bread representing your life that was broken for us, help us remember and celebrate your faithfulness to us and to all who will receive you. Jesus, we can't even begin to fathom the agonizing suffering of your crucifixion. Yet you took that pain for us. You died for us. Thank you for your extravagant love and unmerited favor. Thank you that your death gave us life, abundant life now and eternal life forever. God, as you instructed your disciples, we too receive the bread in remembrance of you. And, and the Lord, in the same way as we take this cup representing your blood poured out from a spiritual splintered cross, we realize that you were the supreme sacrifice for all our sins, past, present, and future. And because of your blood shed for us and your body broken for us, we can be free from the power and the penalty of sin. Thank you for your victory over death. The death that you took, that we deserve, you took our punishment. Your pain was indeed our gain. And this morning, God, we remember and celebrate the precious gift of life you gave us through the blood that you spilled. In Jesus' name, amen. When you're ready to take the bread and the cup, would you just come uh, as we hear um, the song, Behold the Lamb.